28. We have begun this section of this letter in which Paul is addressing particularly questions that the Corinthian church had for him in what appears to have been a letter or a contact with him. And they basically were asking, well, what about this situation or that situation or this doctrine or that thing? And in this section of the letter, he first began addressing different circumstances of marriage. He was looking at circumstances where someone became a Christian when they were in their marriage, perhaps both individuals became a Christian and how they're to live together then in marriage. We also looked last time at how what happens if one partner is called as a Christian and the other is not. What do you do in that circumstance? Paul was addressing that. And now he presents a corollary teaching. How much of our lives must we change when we become Christians? What circumstances or details might it be that need to be changed? This is no no small question to a church that is made up of people from various different backgrounds and circumstances. Follow along as I read this section of scripture which Paul answers in part in this section of scripture. Beginning at verse 17, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. He writes, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. We're going to stop there as we consider Paul's teaching on these three matters in particular, but let us come to the Lord briefly in prayer. Lord, if you would, guide these words. Guide them to hearers who have ears to hear and those who have hearts to believe your word. May your spirit use this, your word, to convict us of sin, remind us of the need for righteousness, and Lord, point us to a knowledge that there will come a time of judgment. Lord, I pray that the words spoken here would be consistent with yours or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church in Corinth was potentially made up of a great range of individuals. 
there were Jews and Gentiles. And that was unusual in a society in which those who were perhaps very faithful in their Jewish religion would not have associated with Gentiles. And Gentiles, of course, because of this, often did not associate with Jews. Also in the church, there were those who were married, those who were unmarried, those who were potentially uh, getting married, all of those statuses. And of course, in that society in those days, marriage had all kinds of cultural connotations regarding not only your day-to-day life, but also your welfare. There were those who were slaves, those who were free, those who had great social status, those who had no social status, and likely all kinds of other distinctions. This group of people meeting in Corinth would not ordinarily have associated with each other, but in Christ, they became a family. They became a family, yes, that had its problems. We've already seen in Corinth the problems of, the, of division, the problems of immorality, the problems of compromising with culture, all those things contained in this letter that Paul is addressing. But they are brothers and sisters in Christ. So now they ask the question, how closely should these brothers and sisters resemble each other in their everyday lives? In other words, should all their circumstances be pretty much the same once they became Christians? What is acceptable or unacceptable in their status in society? What was essential and what was not? So here's Paul trying to answer these questions. And the basic premise of this section of scripture is like this. He says here, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. In other words, we are reminded that when someone becomes a Christian, God has assigned them a particular circumstance at the time of which they are called. And much of that life may remain the same after God has called him. Now, he's not saying that your life is going to remain the same. Of course, we know that The major part of becoming a Christian is repenting of your sins, turning from your sinful lifestyle, and this has tremendous ramifications for us as believers. For when we turn from that sin, sometimes we do change the circumstances of our lives. But they're asking questions, perhaps about their background, ethnically or traditionally or ceremonially, They're asking about their job status in their society and their social status. And they're asking about their conditions of marriage. And Paul says, basically, this is my rule in all the churches where God has assigned you. When possible, he may allow you to continue in the place in which he has called you. The first of these circumstances in verses 18 through 20 regards circumcision. He says, verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? In other words, there were Jews in the church who became believers, and because of the tradition and the ceremonial law, some of them even by faith obeying the law of Moses, when they were children, they were circumcised. And he says to them, if you were circumcised when God called you in Christ, don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Now, I have to say, without going into the details of these things, evidently that was a practice among those, some of those 
in the church or in the community that were Jews from birth and were circumcised in order to fit into the society around them, they would have a surgical procedure to attempt to remove the marks of circumcision. Sounds horrible. And yet they did this, in essence, so that they could fit in and so that those around them would not consider them Jewish for all kinds of a variety of reasons, in part so that society around them would not look down on them but would accept them. Paul had by this time already been teaching that it is not required to be circumcised in order to be a faithful believer. So he tells them in the church, don't remove the marks of circumcision if you have already been circumcised. Then he asks, of course, the reverse question. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? This would particularly have been those Gentiles who were believers and were outside the community of Israel. And those individuals, he says, don't seek to have it done. Now, of course, this was radical teaching for many in the early church. We see many places in scripture where this was addressed. In fact, it came to the great first presbytery meeting in Jerusalem where this matter was discussed, and they let the Holy Spirit lead them in this teaching to understand that no longer was circumcision required for someone to be a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, we understand that God's work at baptism serves basically the same purpose of seeing us come under the covenant grace of God as circumcision did in the Old Testament. So he says, if you are a Gentile, you have been uncircumcised when God called you to understand the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Don't worry about being circumcised. Why? He says this, not only let him not seek circumcision, but the next verse, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. He says what matters is not the outward tradition. What matters is the inward condition. If you all have been saved from, by, from your sins by the blood of Christ on the cross and your repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, then what matters is not the outward things. What matters is what pours out from the heart. What matters then is keeping God's commands. So therefore, he says, Remain in the condition in which you were called. Now, you may wonder, what does that have to do with the church today? I don't know that we have big uh, Bible conferences in our churches that say, what does it mean about circumcision? Should we be circumcised or not? I haven't seen a single church that has had that particular Bible conference advertised. Have you? And yet the principles of this still apply to our church today. By what condition are we called? I think perhaps in our society, maybe the best place to look at this is in the area of tattoos, of all things. The Old Testament tells us that we should not get tattoos. That's what the law says. In the state of Israel and in the country of Israel, they were not to place these marks on their bodies, particularly because some of them were in association with idolatry. But God said, don't mark up your body. Don't get tattoos. Don't get those other things. But what happens if you already have one when you become a Christian? In our society, tattoos are so prevalent, there's a whole array of places where you can do that right here in our own community. I don't think a Christian should be in the business of seeking to get tattoos. 
In fact, if you don't have tattoos, I'm going to tell you, don't get them. It's not worth it. In fact, remain in the condition in which you were called. You don't need tattoos to tell people who you are before God. But if you have tattoos, as long as they're not obscene, as long as they don't have immoral pictures or other things associated with them, don't seek to remove the marks. Remain in the condition in which you were called. It might surprise you to learn how many people in our church have tattoos after all. And some of them got them in very unsavory circumstances. But when they became Christians, I'm not going to go and tell them, go and have all your tattoos removed and have the procedures done to do that. This is how radical this teaching was, even more so to those who understood the meaning of circumcision in the Old Testament. They knew that circumcision was tied to their identity as the people of God. And now the circumstances had changed to the fact that now circumcision was no longer required. The initiatory rite of the church is baptism. We have no mark that place is placed on our body because we're baptized. It all points to the inward reality of our position and status before God. You see, when it comes to ritual or action prompted by faith, God all along has said, He's more interested in obedience than he is in ritual. That's the topic of circumcision. That's just one of the three. The next one is the topic of slavery. Verses 21 through 24, he mentions the obvious in their society. Some of them are slaves, some of them are free. In other words, Christ had come into the lives of people in their society from the lowest rungs of their society to those with status in their society. The wealthy who may have owned slaves, one of whom we know was Philemon in the scriptures, to those who were now slaves, one of whom in another town was known by the name of Onesimus. We know these things from that short letter. In Corinth, it was much the same way. There were those from all these social strata across society. So then he says this, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, let's say you're a slave. You're someone who is owned by someone else. You have no rights. You have no privileges. You cannot come and go as you please. In fact, you are completely at the pleasure of another human being. He says, don't be concerned about it. Now to us, in our ears, when we hear these words, we think, well, how could you not be concerned about it? He's not saying that you won't ever be concerned about it. It doesn't affect your life. It doesn't challenge you. There won't be times where life doesn't seem fair or where you're oppressed or whatever it says. He says basically before God it doesn't matter. Your status before God does not matter. When God looks at you, he does not look at you as this man's slave. He looks at you, as he says here, as a freed man of the Lord. Notice what he says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Now, of course, he also says here, if you can gain your freedom, do so. There is all kinds of debate over the exact scriptural meaning or the word meaning of this particular verse, but whether you're thinking of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Beza, Hodge, many commentaries, they all agree that this says freedom is preferable over slavery. 
So he says here, if you're a slave, on the one hand, don't worry about your status, either in the church or before God. If you can gain your freedom, gain your freedom. But if not, recognize that in the eyes of God, you are his freed man. What a great teaching that is for those who were in the lowest rung of society. Think about it. Perhaps you were a slave because you could not pay your bills and you sold yourself to somebody else. Perhaps you were a slave because you were captured by some Gentile uh, army and you were sold into slavery and you happened to be in Corinth and became a believer. You had no rights or privileges or status before others. There were those in your church who had looked down on you because you had no way to gain a living yourself. You, know, you, you basically were a nobody in your society yet before God. You have every right and privilege. So there he says to the slave when called. But what about those who are free? He says, For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. In other words, if you're one of the privileged that is a free person, you've never been in slavery, you have your own uh, perhaps either middle class status as an artisan in society or a businessman, or perhaps you're wealthy and you have status in the society around you, remind yourselves that just because you have these freedoms and privileges does not make you better than anybody else. Just like the slave, you too are a slave to Christ, a servant of God. In other words, we're all on the same plane. It doesn't matter how wealthy we are. It doesn't matter what the community thinks of us in our social standing. It doesn't matter what our background is. If we are in Christ, we are all on the same plane and we all belong to Jesus. And he reminds us the cost of this. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. When he says you were bought with a price, he's reminding them whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter who you are, what your status is. It doesn't matter whether or not you have to at some point purchase your freedom if you're going to gain it. All of you were enslaved to sin. All of you were enslaved by the consequences of your sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. And it cost the blood of Jesus Christ to purchase you from your slavery that you might be freed from sin and its consequences. It doesn't matter whether you are the wealthiest person, it still costs the blood of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're the poorest of the poor in the depths of poverty, it still costs the blood of Christ. Remember, you were bought with a price. Therefore, he says, do not become bond servants of men. In other words, if you are a slave, gain your freedom, but if not, don't be worried about it. In God's eyes, you're a freed man. If you are free, remind, be reminded that you are slaves of Christ and you were bought with a price. So therefore, in, in all circumstances, refrain from selling yourself into slavery, not just literally, but I think he means here figuratively. Don't let yourself be enslaved by someone else. In today's language, we might say, don't let your political party be the one that reigns and makes all your decisions for you. 
Don't let your society or local community organization be the most important thing in your life. Don't sell your soul to someone who wants you to do something that is displeasing to them. Don't follow a celebrity to the point where you are enslaved by that leader. Instead, know that you are belonging to Jesus. Do not become slaves of men. And again, the refrain. What is Paul saying? Just like in circumcision, remain with God in whatever condition you were called. Don't we get all the time as believers, how does this apply to us today? Maybe we don't have slavery, although if we are honest with ourselves, we know that perhaps even in the Myrtle Beach community, there may be those who are serving their masters because of fear and terror and immorality. You know what I mean in the area of Myrtle Beach and in these tourist areas. Every once in a while we see in the news those who have been basically working the sex slavery for our tourist business. If you can gain your freedom, do so. But how else does this mean? People ask me all the time, should I change my job when I became a Christian? Should I change my vocation or should I worry about being promoted? Maybe I don't need to be stalking the shelves. Maybe I need to be a manager to have more influence. And what is God saying in this text context? He's saying, first of all, he says poverty is no excuse for not serving God. We're all slaves of Christ. Being wealthy is no excuse for not serving God. We all are slaves of Christ. But he's also saying these outward things don't matter. If you want to remain in the position in which you are called in your vocation, whether you have a lot of influence or you have a little influence. If God has called you to that and gifted you in that area, stay there and serve him with joy. The outward circumstances are not as important as the inward condition. Then the third thing that he addresses is that of the betrothed. Here it says, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, again, you may see a footnote in your Bible, the word is virgins here, uh, but it seems to appear that this has to do with marriageable virgins in their society. We are reminded by this of the state of society being quite different there in their circumstances, unlike America where we go on an elaborate dating scheme and we uh, court people for a period of time and make our decisions and all those things in their society. It was mostly arranged marriages. Some of them had been promised to someone else for years. Their parents may have arranged their marriage, or someone else may have arranged the circumstances. So what about these individuals? Should they carry through with this betrothal process, or should they not? Here are Paul's answers. First of all, he reminds them that Jesus did not directly address this circumstance in the material that Paul had available to him. But he gives his judgment, he says, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, he gives it with full apostolic authority, recognizing he cannot draw upon a specific command of Christ. And here he says this, I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now what does that mean? If you have an arranged marriage, you've been betrothed to somebody, and you're supposed to stay as you are, does that mean that you get married, or does that mean that you stay betrothed for the rest of your life? Kind of unclear, isn't it? So he goes on to say this. 
He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, of course, Paul will say elsewhere, I wish that you were like me. When Paul wrote those words, he was single. He was not married. He said, it's, it's perhaps easier in life in my circumstance and, and my situation. I like the condition to which God has called me, and I can serve him in this capacity, and I think it's just fine if you're single like me. And so he says to them, he says, if you want to remain as you are, that's fine. I think that's great. Remember, remain with God in whatever condition you were called, if possible, and if it pleases God. So he says, if you are bound to a wife, do not seek to be freed. Now again, the question is, are you supposed to marry then or not? That's a question. But he says here, basically, if you are bound to this wife, if you are committed to her, if it is a legal transaction and it is expected that you marry this individual, if you are bound to her in this way, do not seek to be free. Perhaps the best example of that is a guy by the name of Joseph. He was betrothed to a young woman named Mary. He learned that Mary was pregnant and he was told by God that this was a result of the Holy Spirit. And so he remained as he was, bound to her to take care of her. He did not seek in that circumstance to be freed. But then he says, if you are free from a wife, do not seek a wife. In other words, if you are not engaged to be married, if you are not in the legal process of these things, and you feel as if you may be called to be single, not everyone has that gift, then do not seek a wife just so that the church can say, oh, you're getting married, that makes you a better person or a better Christian. There have been times in American churches where some people have said it is better to be married than to be single. And then all the singles out there wonder if they are less than those who are married. And Paul is saying here, we're all on the same plane. God will call us to our circumstances if we are legally engaged to be married and committed to that woman, we should carry through with that marriage. But if not, and if it's your gift in life, do not seek a wife. But in all those circumstances, Paul reminds us this wonderful thing called marriage. If you get married, it's not sinful. Evidently, there were those in the Corinthian church who were teaching not only that uh, marriage partners should abstain from relations with each other, but they were also teaching that getting married itself is the wrong thing to do. Completely the opposite of so many Christians throughout history. And he says, no, that's not the case. Marriage is not sinful. It's not sinful for the man. It's not sinful for the woman. In fact, he just wrote, he said earlier in the chapter, he said this, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, it was a circumstance that was good. Marriage is good in the eyes of God. But if God does not call you to be married, it's okay. And yet we are reminded marriage is like this. He says, when you are married, he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I'm not going to say how troubled our marriage is. 
We have our problems like everybody else, but I'm going to tell you about our wedding. My own father, who was a pastor, was the one who did the ceremony of our wedding. We watched some videos and did some things in preparation as part of our premarital counseling, and then the day came for my dad to officiate over the ceremonies of our wedding. And I don't remember everything that my father said. We don't remember all the words at our wedding because our minds are so focused on the bride, we husbands. But I do remember this. My dad had tears coming down his eyes, not because he was joyful, but because he said something along the lines of, I know you're going to have some hard times. And I know the circumstances are going to be difficult. In essence, he was saying, I'm so glad you're getting married, son, but it's not always going to be a piece of cake. You see, when we are married, we will have worldly troubles because two sinful people don't always get along with each other. We will have troubles because there are temptations in the world. There are circumstances that we find it difficult to work together towards. We sometimes don't have the same goals or the same families or the same traditions. And sometimes we have problems. But in the end, what does Paul say according to the Holy Spirit? Marriage is still not sinful. Remain in the condition in which you were called, if possible, unless God gifts you in another way or calls you to other circumstances. The final analysis of all of this, whether you're talking about circumcision, whether you're talking about slavery, whether you're talking about those who are betrothed, what is the final analysis? We are called from all kinds of different circumstances. I'm so glad everybody's not the same. I'm so glad that there were both Jews and Gentiles. I'm so glad that there were both the rich and the poor, the freed and the enslaved. I'm so glad that there were both married and unmarried. There were those who were seeking to get married and those who didn't want to get married. It does not necessarily call us to change our vocation or our circumstances. Yet at the same time, he does not forbid improving our lot in life. You see, social status, marital status, ceremonial tradition, none of that matters to God. What matters is repentance and faith and consistency in our walk with him. What does God want from us once we are bought with that price of the blood of Christ? He wants us to show our love for him by obeying the commands of Christ. He wants us to see that together we are glorifying him because we love him and we seek to follow him. And then all these things begin to play out when we understand it's not the outward things, it is the inward things that God sees as the most important. Stay where you are, he says, and yet by God's grace you might be called to great things. Let's pray. Father, knit us together as a church family from the various backgrounds, different ethnicities, different traditions, different social stratuses, different ideas and backgrounds, and yet, Lord, one in Jesus Christ. Lord, not only knit us together, but show us your purpose for us. Help us not to dwell on the unimportant things, but, Lord, to show our love for you in our walk with you. We pray these things.